So for the next five weeks, we will learn what the Bible has to say about the spread of the gospel. The gospel being the good news that Jesus Christ had come, and the world now can be saved through faith and trust in him and in him alone. Specifically, we're going to be learning and talking about how that gospel should be spread to all nations, all tribes, all tongues, and all peoples, to the ends of the earth. And so for some of us, this will be new, and for others, this will not be a new teaching. However, no matter where you are at in your understanding of God's plan for the world, let me assure you, you will not want to miss the next five weeks because, here's why, this is important, because in hearing about the call to reach the ends of the earth with the gospel, some of you will be called to participate, and that's what I'm pretty excited about. We're going to talk about words in terms like missions, uh, missionaries, messengers, witnesses, and all that type of stuff. We're going to learn what it means to be called by God, specifically as an individual or a family, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So over the next five weeks, every service, every sermon, every prayer is going to be um, a call for you to become more fully engaged in God's plan to save people from all over the world. We're a young church. We will celebrate three years, like I said earlier, in September. And uh, most of us, most, most of us, most of us, and it starts all over. I stutter every time. Most of us have come to faith since visiting CityGate Church, and that is a, that's a blessing. That's what we started the church for, where imperfect people can show up and hear what God has to say and respond to it. But this gospel, this Bible, the church is so much bigger than just our city or even our state or our nation. It's the, the gospel of Jesus Christ should be spread to all nations, People that look completely different than us. People that speak a language that we could never even attempt to speak. People that we don't even know exist because we can't pronounce their country's name. All that kind of stuff is important to the gospel. And so here's the, the goal or the aim of the month of June. Number one, I have how many things I got? Four, four goals, big ones, okay? I am praying and I have been praying that one, two, or 20 of you will take seriously the call to global missions. Now that's pretty scary, right? One or two is okay. 20 of us is like 30% of our church. So one, two, or 20, I'm hoping that God will do a work in your life to further reveal how you can be used to be a witness to the ends of the earth. Okay, that's the number one overall goal of this, of this month. Number two, I'm hoping to increase our awareness and support for those who do go and who have been called to the ends of the earth to share the gospel. That's important to us as a church that we get involved in um, not just our city or our state, but what the church is doing around the world. Number three, um, kind of a less of a goal, just an information for you. I'm going to be preaching the first three weeks of June, these first three Sundays, and Nathaniel Camp will be preaching the final two weeks of June. Nathaniel and Nikki Camp are on their way to Kenya. So um, we've been blessed by their leadership and their presence at our church. And so this, this, uh, this month is for us to understand maybe a little bit more what they're going through and what they're going to be involved in and the call that God has placed on their life. At the end of June, the final Sunday, June 30th, Nathaniel and Nikki are going to host a lunch. Well, the elder recruits are putting on the lunch. It's their job to actually get it done, okay? So, huh, right? It's going to be amazing, and you're not going to want to miss it. And uh, Nathaniel and Nikki are pretty much just going to uh, enjoy meeting you and then sharing how God has called them uh, to, to the country of Kenya. So that's what they're going to do. You can hang out with them. You will be, you'll listen to a presentation, but it's more of a conversation of what God has done in their lives and why they're actually packing up their belongings and going back to a place they already were and to continue to minister to the people of that country. So those are some final, uh, you know, those are some things that I, I hope for our church. That's the direction we're going to take. Here is, so if you had to put a title on all of this, the entire month of June, 
I would just say to the ends of the earth. That's what it is. That's, what it is. that's our, our theme for the month. Let that, uh, that phrase continue to ring through your ears, to the ends of the earth. And it comes from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And so Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and, Gen- and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This has been the plan from the beginning. Going out to people that don't speak your language or going to try to reach people with the gospel didn't come because the church was so full that we didn't have anywhere else to go in the States, and so we got bored and we had to go reach other people. It's always been the plan that the message would spread to every tribe and every nation and every tongue. This morning, I want to kick off this focus on global missions by introducing you to a man named Simon. And in his early years, he's called Simon. Later, he's called Peter. You can call him Simon Peter, whatever you wish. It's the same guy no matter what I say. Okay, just a little, little warning. Simon Peter is an apostle. He is one of the 12 men chosen by God to build his church as recorded in the New Testament. He is used by God to do miraculous things. He he heals people. He casts out demons. Um, in the book of Acts, we see recorded five of his very dynamic sermons, which he gives. Um, one of the most influential sermons is in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to refer to that later. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter will go and he will author two New Testament letters, which are towards the back of your Bible, 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And throughout his life, Simon Peter is used in a very magnificent way to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. There was, there's really no better example of kind of a simple guy, simple man like you and like me, that we could look to to figure out why this is a reality for him. What drove him to obedience? What drove him to give up his life, walk away from what he had, follow Christ, and spread the gospel to the nations? Well, I believe that answer is found in Luke 5, verses 1 through 11. And so here's the big idea of the verses that John had already read to us. Here's the big idea. Simon was caught to catch That's what the entire story is about. Simon was caught so that he would catch. Now, let me set this story up for you because it's in Luke chapter 5, which means there are four chapters that come before it. So let me tell you how Luke writes his gospel. Luke starts off by telling us that Jesus was born. That's really important. So, right, Jesus is born. That's Christmas. We don't want the snow, but we have to say the word Christmas. It's just a thing. Don't get worried. Um, We've had enough sun that I don't think it's coming back. So Jesus is born. There's the angels, the shepherds, the barn, all that stuff. That happens. And then Jesus is dedicated at the temple. We see that in the the early part of Luke. Then we see a story about Jesus as a young man. He's about 12 years old. And there's this interaction where his parents think he ran away from them, but he's just hanging out at the church, and they come back, and they freak out. So there's that story. But then we don't hear anything about Jesus until he's 30 years old. So Jesus is 12, and then he's 30 and when he's 30, he begins to, to get some fame. Uh, he's baptized by a man named John, John the Baptist. That was not his name. You know, it's kind of the title they gave him. Um, once he is baptized, Jesus will spend 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. Yet, this is the important part, never giving in to temptation because Jesus was sinless. He was a sinless son of God. Now, once he leaves the wilderness, he begins to, to do or to practice what is called his public ministry. He's out in the public. People hear him. They see him. They're interacting with his teaching. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. And so he teaches in the Jewish synagogues. He performs all sorts of miracles. And then chapter 5. And then he calls his first followers, his disciples, which is Simon and his crew. 
Now, let's say we were to take these 11 verses up, and here's how I want you to consume them. Let, let's say they were like a book. We wrote a book, and there was only three chapters of that book, and they all had to do with these 11 verses. I'm going to break the story up into three chapters. Chapter 1, simple title, Jesus Prepares for a Miracle. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2, Jesus Performs a Miracle. And then chapter 3, Simon Responds to the Miracle. That's pretty much how I'm going to break up the sermon this morning. So I'm going to read for you verses 1 through 4 again. Here's chapter 1. Jesus prepares for a miracle. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, so Jesus is gaining fame. People are getting so close to him. They're surrounding him. He's, everywhere he goes, there's just a mass amount of people. So he goes to um, a lake of Gennesaret. You can think of this as a Sea of Galilee. It's pretty much the same name. And he, this is Jesus, saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. So Jesus sees two empty boats. Getting into one of those boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and he taught people from the boat. So, so many people pressing around Jesus, he couldn't really stand on the shore. He had to get into a boat where he can kind of be a little bit away from people so they could hear him and so they could see him. And Jesus begins to teach. And we had finished speaking, when he's done teaching, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. So Jesus requests something of Simon, and Simon responds, Master, we have toiled all night, and we took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Right away, we see that Jesus gets into a specific boat at a specific time, and he calls upon a specific person to do a very specific thing. And I want to tell you, this all happens so the message of salvation through him would begin to spread. Now, no matter where you're at uh, in your Christian walk, whether you're a believer here or not, you are very much welcomed in this place. I want to share one thing with you, maybe the most important thing you understand about the Bible and about the Christian faith is that God is absolutely in control and sovereign at all times. Absolutely, completely sovereign. Now, we don't like it all of the time, amen? We don't like the sickness or the evil that we see, or we don't like the sin. We don't like all the stuff that comes with that. However, if God were not completely sovereign and in control, then he would cease to be God. So our God is the one true and living God. Therefore, everything is under his power. He allows things. He doesn't allow certain things. And that can sometimes get us a little depressed. But for this specific story, this isn't an accident. It wasn't like Jesus was walking and goes, oh, I just stumbled into a boat. And that boat just happened to float away from the people. And he just happened to be in Simon's boat. No, you see, God has plan God's plan for salvation has been set before the foundations of the earth were formed. That's our God. Everything is planned out and calculated for his glory. And now we're introduced to a fisherman. Simon is the main character, Simon Peter. They've been fishing all day, him and his crew, and they have not caught one thing. They're tired. They're ready to pack up. They're cleaning the nets, which is like the last thing you do before you wind them up and put them away for the day. But all they want to do is clock out. They want to head home. That's all they want to do. They've already docked the boats. They're cleaning the nets. And this is when Jesus shows up, this guy who's somewhat famous, who's got a lot of people following him, makes a request of these fishermen. Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon responds, Master, we toil all night and took nothing. Jesus, um, I know you're important. I know you've said a lot of stuff. I'm aware of your power. You say you're God. Something you might want to know. We've been fishing all day. Haven't caught a thing. So going back out isn't going to help any of that. We've been there. 
we've dropped those nets. Now, what I don't want you to think of is, is Simon's response. I don't want you to think that indicates he was rude or quick-tempered. I don't, I don't think that's the tone at all. I think he was simply humbly honest with Jesus. Also, I think anything that a true fisherman wants to do is follow the instructions of someone who's not a fisherman. Amen? Hey, let me tell you how to do your job, right? We're surrounded by those people. Amen? Gotcha. Okay. I think the last thing Simon wants to do is repeat what he's done all day. Cast the nets. Bring them in. Nothing there. Cast the nets. Bring them in. Nothing there. Last thing he wants to do is just relive not catching fish. However, Simon has already witnessed the power of Jesus with his own eyes. You see, before chapter 5 comes chapter 4, and in chapter 4, we see Luke record a story where Jesus shows up to Simon, Simon's mother-in-law, mother-in-law's house, and he heals her from a fever. So Simon has seen Jesus work a miracle right before his own eyes. It wasn't too long before this interaction with Jesus that Simon witnessed Jesus completely heal his mother-in-law. One minute she's in bed with a terrible fever, and the next minute she's up serving her house. Luke chapter 4, verse 38 says this, And he arose and left the synagogue, this is Jesus, and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was with a high fever, and they appealed to him, this is Jesus, on behalf of her. And Jesus stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she began she arose, began to serve them, completely and utterly healed from a really bad fever, just like that. Now, when it comes back to Simon, when we see him as a person on the side of the lake being called by Jesus, what's interesting is this. Both of these stories are documented miracles by Jesus in front of Simon. He sees both of them. But Simon responds differently to the second one. I don't think he liked fish more than his mother-in-law, but he just responds differently. I think it's fair to conclude that Simon knew of Jesus. He knew of Jesus when his mother-in-law was ill. But he was not overcome with the power of Jesus when he saw her healed. Simon's mother-in-law was healed, but that didn't cause Simon to drop to his knees in fear and in worship like he did when he saw two sinking boats full of fish. See, Jesus provides that surplus of fish, and this gets his attention for real this time. And the second miracle gets Simon to fall to his knees and worship. It's understandable that Simon is a little bit hesitant to follow Jesus' instructions about the nets. But he's also willing to submit because he has witness and he knows the power that Jesus has. Not necessarily because Simon is worshiping him as Lord and Savior does he obey. In fact, it's not until later in chapter 9 when we read Simon actually confess who Jesus is. It's going to take four other chapters down the road when Jesus stands in front of his disciples and say, a lot of people are calling me a lot of different things. What do you guys, who do you guys say that I am? And Simon responds, you're the Christ of God. You're the Savior. You're the one whom God has sent into the world. So we don't really know where Simon's head and heart are at in the moment. Certainly he was not worshiping Jesus when his mother-in-law was healed. Now he's getting closer to worship when his nets are full of fish, and they just weren't 10 minutes ago. You see, it's one thing to think of Jesus as powerful, as someone who has the power to do miracles. That is one thing. It's a completely other thing to confess that he is a Savior who has saved you. 
It's one thing to know of what he's capable of. It's a completely other thing to recognize him as a savior of the world, the one who God has sent into the world to seek and save the sinner. Those are two separate relational things to Jesus. But to this point, I would say Simon simply obeys because he's witnessed Jesus' power. So what does he do? He puts the nuts down into the deep following the instructions of Jesus. Friends, for your life, I, I want to challenge you a little bit. It's one thing to sit here and know of Jesus. It's a completely other thing to worship him. We need to understand that as a church. So let's turn the page to the proverbial chapter 2. That's chapter 1. Jesus prepares for a miracle. Chapter 2. Jesus performs a miracle. Verses 6 and 7. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. That's a change of pace there. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink Luke wastes no time in documenting this story. There's an instantaneous rise in action. As soon as Simon trusts in what Jesus says, the nets are so full, they begin to break. The nets are so full, they cannot haul them back to the boat alone, so they signal the help of James and John. There's so many fish in the nets, the boats would have sunk if he did not get the help from James and John. In fact, after his partners come to help him, they slowly take their haul back to the Back to the, uh, the shore, you can kind of see these boats riding really low in the water with a continued fear that they still might take on water and sink. And these boats are full of fish. Jesus creates such an abundance of fish, the equipment wasn't even strong enough to manage it. And this is essentially a metaphor for Simon's life. Jesus does something so powerful, Simon can hardly understand it. Remember, I told you that Simon would preach five impactful sermons in the start of the early church, as the early church began to take shape. One of those sermons is in the um, book of Acts chapter 2. Simon Peter would stand up and he'd preach a little bit, and 3,000 people would come to faith in Christ that day. 3,000 would come to faith and be baptized. We've been doing this thing for three years. we got 27 people to get baptized. That's amazing. One is enough, amen? 27 is a great blessing. 3,000 people in one day. This is the metaphor for Simon's life. Jesus, I don't quite understand where you're going or what you're doing, but because of your power, miraculous things are going to happen. I'm just going to submit to it and just ride that wave. That's what I'm going to do. You know, we don't always see the instant outcome of whatever obedience we're called to. Think about it in your life. We're called to obey certain things as recorded in the word of God about our Christian life. And we don't always know that this little act of obedience, what it's going to lead to 10 years from now. We don't know who's watching. We don't know who's learning. We don't know who's witnessing our obedience to Christ. Do you think Simon thought that if he just lets his net out into the deep, that a little while from then on, three years later, that 3,000 people would come to faith because he stands up and preaches? I don't think he thought that. You need to know, I, I don't think people are going to get saved because I'm talking up here a lot. That's not the reason that we come to church. We come to church so that the word of God would be preached and sung and prayed over and remembered. So really, it's not my power and my voice that's going to lead anybody to faith. It's the word of God doing the work of God that leads people to faith. Amen? That's what it does. See, Simon obeyed. God worked. Jesus seeks Simon out. He goes to a specific area of the lake and tells a specific person to let out his nets so he could do his work. It's like that guy named Moses in the Old Testament. 
If you don't know who Moses is, he's, this, he's a murderer, actually. He lived in Egypt for a long time. He killed somebody, so he ran and hid in the desert. And then God shows up to him and says, hey, Moses, there's a whole bunch of Jews over in Egypt, and they're enslaved. Here's the deal. I need you to go there and tell Pharaoh, the most powerful person on the planet, to let my people go so they can worship me. And Moses is like, um, God, I, I don't know if you know this about me. I can't even talk straight without stuttering most of the time. I can't speak clearly. I can't do this. God says, no, no, I'm, I'm going to send some help. But you're going to go. And what happens? God frees his people from slavery because Moses was obedient. There's a man named Jonah, you know, deep sea, big fish kind of thing. You know that story? And Jonah doesn't want to obey God just for a second. In fact, he doesn't even reply to God and say, I don't think I can do this. He just goes the opposite way right away. He just runs. God says, hey, Jonah, go to the most wicked city known to man, the capital of Assyria. Go to Nineveh, where you obviously know if you just show up, they'll kill you for fun. But I need you to go, and I need you to preach. Jonah doesn't even bother to respond to God. He just runs the other way. But you see, when he does obey, do you think that Jonah ever thought that the entire city, the Bible says the entire city, could have been up towards to 600,000 people fell down in worship of the one true and living God. That's amazing. One act of obedience, and people are saved. This is Simon in our story. Chapter three, Simon responds. Let's see how he responds. Is he like Moses, like Jonah? What does God use him to do? Well, these verses reveal the true meaning behind the miracle, verses eight through 11. But when Simon Peter saw it, this is the boat full of fish. This is the sinking boats. This is the miracle that Jesus had just performed. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus's knees saying, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus then said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. Never underestimate how your obedience to Jesus will impact those around you. Never underestimate how one simple act of obedience would be the power the gospel needs to spread to all the nations. Simon is there, James and John are there, and the Bible says they all get up, leave their fishing business behind, and they follow Jesus. See, Simon wasn't the only one impacted by the miracle. Many people around him were. And I picture, and this is hard for me to understand, because I, I picture a Simon as someone who's hard to win over. If he was easily impressed, or if he was easy to win over, he would have been worshiping at Jesus' knees when his mother-in-law was miraculously healed in front of his eyes. Luke does not record Simon, Pe Simon Peter saw his mother-in-law get out of bed, completely healed, and he worshiped at Jesus' knees. This doesn't say that, but he says that about the fish story. When Simon Peter witnessed two fishing boats full of fish, so full they were at the point of sinking, this got his attention. Simon was, Simon asked Jesus to depart from him. Now, this is an interesting thing for some of us. Maybe, why does Simon say this? Why, why the phrase? Why, why would he tell Jesus, get away from me? I can't be near you. Oh, because Jesus, uh, Simon recognized the power of Jesus as being the very power of God. Not the first miracle, but the second one. 
He realized this is God in the flesh. And because this is God and I'm sinful, I cannot be near this man. Far too powerful for me. I'm not worthy enough to be next to you. Just go away. Just depart from me. He knew he was a sinner. And therefore, he knew he was unworthy to be in the presence of God. It was a healthy fear of the Lord which brought Simon to a realization of who Jesus was. It was a humble understanding of his sin that brought him to his knees in worship. And friends, that's our entire life. Never stop dropping to your knees in worship because of what God has done for you, despite of your sin. The Bible says, while we were still sinners, Jesus came to seek and to save us. If you're sitting here today and you think, well, I'm way too far gone. John doesn't know enough about me. Well, Jesus knows about you, and he still came to save you. And you're still sitting here hearing the word of God. That's an invitation to salvation right there alone. No one's too far gone for the gospel. No one's too far gone for salvation because if somebody else is too far gone, there's no hope for me. There's no hope for you. If, one, if we think one person on this planet is too far from God to be saved, then our entire hope is dismantled. This hope is for everybody. To the ends of the earth. Simon says, you got to get away from me. I'm, I'm way too bad for you. What does Jesus say? He doesn't say, you're right. Ha, darn it, screwed up again. I was hoping for a perfect person. And you guys seem pretty cool. You guys were fishing, cleaning things up. I figured you guys were really wealthy businessmen doing really great. And I need someone like you on my team. That way more people would be attracted to what I'm saying. That's not what Jesus said. He didn't say, you're right. You're right, Simon. Now that I think about it, I'm way too good for you. I am the son of God. And you're just Simon. And by the way, you haven't caught any fish. Let me rub it in. He didn't say that. You see, Jesus doesn't further condemn Simon, does he? Friends, can I remind you that when you walk into here after six days of hardship and failure, because you've all missed the mark, let's just be honest, right? Everyone is welcome here and no one is perfect. That's the kind of church we are. Every day you walk through those doors, every Sunday, you need to be remember that there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? No longer does sin define us or condemn us or damn us. No longer does it have the power over us. Your faith and trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone has released you from condemnation. So God looks down upon you. He doesn't see judgment coming your way. He sees blessing and hope and joy coming your way because you have the perfect righteousness of his son. There's no other message like this. There's no other religion like this. This is true. This is real. This is God redeeming the world. Jesus recognizes the humility of Simon. And so he reassures him. Ah, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Simon. Don't be afraid of what you saw. I know it brought you to your knees a little bit. I mean, the mother-in-law thing didn't get you, but I just filled your boats twice over with fish. I don't know what that says about your mother-in-law and your relationship. However, this got to you. That's great. Amen. Don't be afraid of what you saw. Because from now on, you will spend your days catching men. Catching men. Just as those fish were caught in Simon's net, so Simon was caught by Jesus. It's as if Jesus says, Peter, you once spent all your days catching fish to kill them, but now you will spend your days catching men and women so they may live. You see, the story is less about the miracle of two sinking boats full of fish. That's not really the focus or the aim of why this story is here. 
You see, if, if, that's where the, if the focus was just to be in awe of two big boats full of fish that are going to be killed and eaten anyway, then we can actually, we, we don't benefit anything from it. But you see, the reason the story is here, the reason why we lose if this story is not in the Bible, is because it's not about the miracle. It's about the one who performs the miracle. The story is less about the miracle of two sinking boats full of fish and more about the call Jesus, Jesus places on the lives of those who worship him. That's why it's here. First, I'll say, we should not read this story and think that God desires for us to pray for a thriving business. That's not what we're being taught. We're not to leave church today and go, well, maybe Jesus can come fill my boats or slash parentheses bank account, right? Some of you got some fishy boats, great. We see It's not so we pray for a thriving business. Now, is it wrong to pray that God would grow your business? No, that's not wrong at all. Is it wrong to care about your job or your career? No, that's actually amazing to God. That's glorious to God. Do I hope all of you become millionaires and give half to the church? Absolutely. I hope you guys get filthy rich and give it all away. But see, that's not the focus of this miracle. That's not the focus. There's nothing telling us that Simon's business of fishing was struggling or failing. There's no indication of hunger or hopelessness. In fact, we, we should think that in the providence of God, that, you know, those nets were empty. It was a setup for Jesus to do his work in Simon's life. I want you to know experiencing miracles are not always the end goal. We pray for miracles. We desire for miracles to happen in our life. Absolutely. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the word of God, we do pray for healing and all sorts of things that happen in our life that would benefit others and help us walk more firmly in our faith. But the end goal is that we would not see the miracle, but that we would worship the one who has the power to perform those miracles. We don't live for the gift. We live for the gift giver. This story should not create a desire to harness the miraculous power of Jesus, but rather give the entirety of our lives to him, to be witnesses for him to the ends of the earth. I don't want to get caught up in performing miracles in the presence of people. Rather, I want the church to become increasingly obedient so that Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit works powers through us so people would benefit. And this means, this story reveals how we as Christians or Jesus followers should be spending our time, our days, our energy, our our everything. Because here's the main point. Big idea, Simon was caught to go catch. Guess what the main point is? Gotcha, you have been caught to go catch. That's it. We have been caught by Jesus so we would catch others. In its most simplistic form, the term global missions, going out to the ends of the earth, being on mission for Christ globally, not just regionally, is a simple act of sending people to the ends of the earth so that others would be caught for Jesus. That's all it's about. More than this, Global Missions is is for ordinary and plain Christians. You're welcome. Simon was not any more influential than you are today in your life. He's not more educated. He doesn't look better than you. I mean, we don't know what he looked like. He probably didn't. He probably looked like you and I, except stinky. He smelled like fish a lot. You guys didn't get that one, but I did. But it's for ordinary and plain people. And this makes me really excited because I'm ordinary and plain. 
And yet a simple act of obedience to God could lead to amazing things for his gospel in our world. He was a simple fisherman. He was a guy working a job, like you and me. He was married. We know that because he has a mother-in-law. We don't know if he had children. He's a simple guy. And he's obedient to what Jesus had called him to do. So, it's kind of the end of the story. Now, what does this mean for us? As we journey together through the month of June, thinking about global missions or, or taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, I want you to consider a few ways that you can get involved with this. Now, the whole story is encompassed by a fishing metaphor, right? So I got a few as well myself. Might as well just stick with the theme. Number one, you have to leave the shore to go and fish, right? If we're going to catch people for Christ so they would live, you got to leave the shore. I mean, you could cast a pole, I guess, from the shore, but that's not where the great fishing happens. And this means you got to leave your bed. This means you can't just do it through text or Facebook Messenger or posting on somebody's wall telling them that Jesus loves them. You got to go to them. You got to leave the shore. You got to get out into the wild. You got to tell people about Jesus. You got to tell people about the man who saved your life. Number two, you have to believe that there are fish in the water. This is what Jesus says. He says, I'm going to go over there because I got people over there. We have to believe that God does have people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that's true because in Revelation, what do we see? People from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. So don't you see? There's going to be a representative from every people group on the planet in heaven. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. You have to work day and night to catch the fish. It can't be like the leftovers of your calendar. Like between 12 and 12.45, I got, I got nothing going. I guess I'll tell somebody about Jesus. That's not how you orientate your life. You put yourselves in position to tell people about Christ. And then you have to trust that God will provide the fish. Do not think that all this work depends on you because you can't save anybody. In fact, you'll screw it up more times than you'll get it right. You will still be amazed what God does for you. So I'm going to end by asking a few questions that you can think of throughout the month of June. Okay, so write these down and think about them. Find someone you trust, a loved one, family member, a friend, coworker, and think about these questions as they impact your life. Our entire month, five weeks of global missions, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, and I want to ask you a few questions to orientate your heart and your mind towards that theme. Number one, do you know of Jesus or do you worship him? Those are two different things. Do you know of Jesus or do you worship him? Knowing of Jesus allows you to be familiar with him, his teachings, maybe his church. You read about who he is and you applaud at all the amazing things that he has done. But you see, worshiping at the feet of Jesus or dropping to his knees and asking him and, and confessing your sin is far different than knowing of him. When you worship Jesus, you're finding all of your worth in him. That's the root word of worship is worth. All of your worth, all of the value of your life is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what worship is. We're ascribing all worth to him. We're saying that Jesus is more honorable than anything. He's more glorifying than anything or anybody. He is the end all, be all of our existence. That's worship. He is the source of life. He is your source of strength. He alone is your security. He is your God. Worshiping creates a desire to be used by him. 
The more impactful your worship is, the more worship-centered your life is, the more that you're going to be desired to be used by him. Worshiping Jesus will inevitably transform your life to look more like his, which is the goal of the Christ follower anyway, to be conformed to the image of Christ. And that's the test, isn't it? Do we love what Jesus loves? Do we hate what he hates? Do we reach out to people like he did? Do we sacrifice what we have so others would hear his message? Does your attitude towards people resemble the attitude Jesus had towards people? That's a big one for us, isn't it? Man, I'm way cooler than anybody else I know. And I already know there's plenty of people that don't deserve to hear the message of Jesus. And when I think that, I'm wrong. We all go through that, church. We all go through that. May our attitudes reflect the attitudes Jesus had towards people. In regards to to those who are Christians in this room, I'm going to give you a quote from a man named Charles Spurgeon. lived a long time ago. He was known as the Prince of Preachers. Here's what he said. All Christians are either missionaries or imposters. That's tough. Now, let me, I got a little bit of time. Some of you are like, no, you don't. Yeah, I do. I got the mic, okay? Let me just tell you, what, we, what Nathaniel and I will not do throughout the month of June is qualify every statement, right? So here's what I mean by that. Um, I qualified a little bit earlier. Uh, it's not about the miracle and the full boats full of fish, so quit thinking this is all about a thriving business. But it's okay to pray for a thriving business. You see that? So when I say all Christians are either missionaries or imposters, I'm not saying, but if you don't want to go to the ends of the earth, you can be a missionary here. It's okay. Do it in your own life. Like, that's true, by the way. You can be a missionary at your job, in your neighborhood, in your home, to your kids or your wife. or your. You can be a missionary anywhere. We're going to simply focus on to the ends of the earth. So when we make big claims like this, don't feel like you're failing if God has not called you to that. That's not my intention at all. Because if you guys all left, we wouldn't have a church. So... Some of you should stay and hang out. The other 30% of you should go. So when I say all Christians are either missionaries or imposters, Charles Spurgeon did mean that every Christian is helping people follow Jesus. Why? Because that's the only evidence that they have that they are following Jesus. Church, if you're not helping other people following Jesus, ask yourself, am I following Jesus? It's so ingrained in the call and the mission, you can't separate the two. You can't say, I'm a Christian, but I don't help anybody follow Jesus or should get to know him. It's false. So we need to grow in this. It's okay if you're not today. We need to grow in this. We need to desire a compassion for people so we would help introduce them to Jesus. And I, can, I hold true to this. Charles Spurgeon doesn't need my you know, approval. I wish he did. He doesn't. But all Christians are either missionaries or imposters. Next. What was the first one? Do you know Jesus or worship him? When you worship Jesus, you'll seek other people to help worship Jesus. Number two, are you willing to leave the safety of the shore and go out into the deep? I mean, Simon had to respond and say, I was just out there. It's kind of nice. I'm almost home. Nets are almost clean. I've clocked out. If I go back out, I'm wasting more money and more time and more energy for catching fish that I don't think I'm going to catch. My P&L is going to look horrible this week if I go back out there. And just as fishermen need to leave the shore to fish, so we need to leave the comforts of our lives to share the gospel with people who have never heard it before. 
Friends, catching people so they would live starts with a submission and obedience to the mission of Jesus Christ to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And if there is a fake, false God of our culture today in the West, it is comfort and it is security. If we're comfortable and if we're safe, we really don't care what else happens. That's all we want. Friends, that's not the way the Christian lives. I don't know to what point God is going to call me to the ends of the earth. For now, he's called me to here, this place, which is why we started this church. You know, then I think about what if he calls my oldest son, who's going to be 12, got a preteen. I don't even know what to do. Some of you guys are going to need to help me. What if, my, what if God calls my son to go to a place where nobody's ever gone and I never see him again? I hope when my son stares me in the eyes and says, I'm going to the nations where nobody has gone, I hope I say, amen. I'll see you in glory. We'll worship Jesus together. What I hope I don't do is say, it's not safe. You can't have a retirement that way. Are you going to have kids out there? The hospitals aren't very great. Well, what are you going to do about food? Like, do you know that they kill Christians there? You know what I hope I say? Go, son. Just go. Are we willing to go into the deep? Before he ascended into heaven, Jesus said, go. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, a lot of churches have different visions of how this gets done. You know what no church gets to do? Change the mission. This is the single mission of the church globally. In fact, if this is not part of the mission of your church, you are not a church. This is what the church is called to, making disciples of Christ, baptizing them, and teaching them. If you are a Christian, you are called to be involved in this singular mission. Somehow and in some way, we are called to be involved. Now, let me tell you what those two ways are. Specific to global missions, you're either a goer or a sender. There's no in between. A goer, someone who goes, or a sender, someone who, it's really simple, sends the goer. I don't even know if goer is a word. But you're a goer or you're a sender. A goer is someone who goes, who gives up the freedoms and the luxuries and the amenities of their current life so others would hear the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. Someone who desires to see the nations worship Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. This is someone who God has clearly called to reach the people at the ends of the earth with the message of forgiveness and of hope. But then there's the sender. And honestly, this is a larger population of people. The sender is someone who helps to send the goer. They do this by committing to daily prayer. Like not saying you will, but doing it. By giving above and beyond financially and by emotionally or physically or spiritually supporting these missionaries, the messengers that Christ has called to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. You're either a goer or a sender. So I, I pray over the month of June, our church develops this language and that we're either goers or we're senders and somehow. Now we're young, so everything we do is for the first time. This is really the first time we spent all month talking about missions. And it's gonna be really exciting for us to figure out how God is going to use us. But just think about it. It's not a burden. It's not a hill to climb and conquer. It's a privilege to be called to this mission. Think, think about it. You are connected to God's mission for this world. 
the one who spoke the sun into existence, the one who upholds everything with the power of his hand and of his word, he's called you to be on his mission. That's a privilege, friends. That's not like a burden. Number three, are you willing to give up what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose? Now, this is a quote I kind of changed a little bit from a guy named Jim Elliott, who was a missionary to Ecuador, who was killed by the very people he tried to reach. By the way, whose wife went back later to love them after they killed her husband. The original quote is something to the effect of, you are no fool if you give up what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. And like I said earlier, some people are going to look at you and go, you're a fool. Like, are there bathrooms there? Like, that's even something we need to talk about. Bathrooms. Is there Wi-Fi there? I don't care. Simon could have stayed on the shore, continually catching fish so that he would kill them and sell them. But he left so that he could reach men and women so they could truly live. Catching fish to kill and sell is temporary. But catching men and women so they may live is eternal. Catching fish to kill and eat fills the belly, pads the bank account, and sustains our life here on earth. This is noble. This is worth our time. This is worth our energy. But, but, catching men and women so that they may live is not temporary. It is eternal. Because it robs hell. It makes heaven all the richer. And when men and women are caught by Jesus All of heaven rejoices. Amen? All of heaven. This is eternal. The people you catch for Jesus, you will be worshiping with them in eternity. So today I call you to begin a a journey of asking God how he desires to use you for his glory to spread his message to the ends of the earth. That's our entire aim this month. I'm going to pray and then we'll remember Christ through communion.